Hi, everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to welcome you back to our series we're doing on Revelation. We're so glad you're tuning in. Today, we are covering part two of chapter seven. This other group of people that find themselves in heaven. And so because of this uniqueness of this group of people, we are also going to be talking about the topic of the tribulation and something called the rapture. You know, let's face it, when it comes to revelation or end time Bible prophecy, with the exception of a few of you out there, most people are only interested in two things, right? The tribulation, this great tribulation, this great trouble that's coming before Christ returns, and something referred to as the rapture. If you've never heard that word, it's a supernatural taking away of God's people to be with him in heaven. And when it comes to this, quote, rapturing away of believers, there are different viewpoints as to when God's people will be taken away. But the most common viewpoint that people align themselves with is what's called the pre-tribulation rapture, where believers will be removed from the earth before tribulation begins. That's really what most people want clarification on, honestly. And so this is where most teachers on the subject of Revelation spend most of their time. So it's no wonder we know very little about this book, because we tend to follow their lead and focus our attention only on those two subjects also, when there's so much more to the end times than that. So that's why we take our time and we're going chapter by chapter. So chapter seven is a good place to pause and discuss both the tribulation and the rapture. And like I've said in an earlier episode, There are many well-versed, respected teachers of eschatology that I highly, highly respect, but they're all saying something different on the subject. So let's just read the Bible and see what can be interpreted from that. So after the sealing of the 144,000 that takes place in the beginning of chapter 7, John looks up and he sees a great multitude of people from every nation of the world, every people group, and every tongue. And they're coming from somewhere. And these passages tell us these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And as they come out, we find them standing before the throne of God. But they're all cleaned up and they're clothed in white robes. And now they have palm branches in their hand, which makes it plainly obvious that these are followers of Christ from all over the globe. So we ask ourselves, okay, if these are believers, what is this great tribulation that they're coming out of? Well, let's start there. What is meant by tribulation? You know, the apostles wrote about end time events, as did other first, second, third, fourth century church fathers, people like Irenaeus and Hippolytus and others. And they equally agreed, as revealed through their writings, that there would be a time of tribulation that would come upon the whole earth just before the return of Christ. And that word tribulation primarily means a pressing. It means pressing together, pressure. And it speaks of affliction and anguish. It speaks of distress and persecution. So during tribulations, things get pressed. Things get tough. Well, in the great tribulation, they're going to get even tougher. People will be pressed like never before. And 
I want you to keep something in mind as we go through this. Think of the pressure and pressing a baby goes through as it works its way through the narrow path of a birth canal, right? The baby is getting squeezed and pressure's felt. Well, friends, if you want the kingdom of God to come, you have to be prepared for the pressing, for the birth pangs. Things are going to get very narrow, but no birth pangs, no birth. So this is what is meant by tribulation, this pressing. So now let's reference some places in scripture where this word is used. We see it in John, uh, by John in Revelation chapter one, verse nine, when he is uh, talking about how he is on Patmos and he says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. John feels tribulation. He gets pressed. And again, in Revelation 2.10, we've already covered these uh, churches, but it was the persecuted church of Smyrna where they were going to have tribulation 10 days. And again, in today's topic, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, the great multitude of people that no one could number coming out of the great tribulation. That same word, though, you can miss it in other places in the New Testament, such as in James chapter 127, when it speaks of the distress widows and orphans face. They, too, feel the pressing. So it's just important to understand this word. Now, in Matthew 24, 9, this is Jesus's discourse on the end times. We've been talking about this little by little, where it says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. This is after Jesus mentions wars, famines, pestilences, right? Then there's going to be tribulation, pressing, pressure, anguish, distress, persecution. And in Matthew 24, 21, After Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such has never been since the beginning of the world until this, nor shall ever be. And this is a kind of pressing or tribulation or pressure or anguish that is used and describes the anguish and distress you feel from the calamities of war. Now, when you consider what happened even in our days, the Holocaust, for example, six million Jews cruelly murdered, burned in ovens. Or when you consider what Stalin did, responsible for, I believe, for the death of what, seven million people in the Soviet Union? Or Mao Zedong, who acknowledged responsibility for the death of 60 million Chinese. 60 million. And something's going to happen that's worse than all that, Jesus says something that has never happened and will never happen again. Great tribulation. Calamities of war. Are we looking at something nuclear? No one knows. So this group of people are the ones who come out, I want to highlight that, of the great tribulation. They have been in persecution. They have been in anguish. They have been being pressed. Now, there's two things I want to point out in this passage, chapter 7, verse 14, when it says those who come out. This verse uses a Greek verb that grammatically means those who are coming out, not that they came out altogether. It's a verb that implies coming out one by one in a long procession. 
they're not coming out in a whole group, poof. But one by one, they're escaping tribulation. And John sees it happening. He's watching them streaming out of the great tribulation, the greatest time of persecution ever to come upon the whole earth. No longer just isolated to certain regions of the world like today. It's global. It's the great tribulation. Because there is only one time in history that this will be experienced. Like I just mentioned about Jesus, never happened before, will never happen again. And then he returns. And unless those days were shortened, he says in verse 21 of Matthew 24, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. He doesn't say they'll be delivered from those days. Just that for the elect, the chosen people of God, the days will be shortened. And we really do not know exactly what that looks like. The other thing I want to point out about these people is that if someone is coming out of the Great Tribulation, they've been in it. How can you come out of something you've never been in? So these are believers. I bring this up because what's taught by many teachers is that this section of chapter 7 confirmed that believers escape the Tribulation, that this proves that all believers are now with the Lord and safe from all trouble. What do they mean by that? That believers will be caught up with the Lord or raptured away before the great tribulation begins. So I just wanted to make mention of that as we go through this, because what you're going to find throughout Revelation is the mention of God's elect, God's saints, believers still being on the earth during trouble. We'll get to that. And so throughout Revelation, we are given clues as to how these people are escaping. They're escaping by martyrdom, as you'll see in future chapters. There will be more Christian martyrs in those last few years than any other time in history. Don't forget, friends, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ in order that we share in his glory. Paul says anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we are the generation in which the great tribulation comes, we must expect to suffer if we are true followers of Christ. That's the cost of following Jesus here on earth. But the reward later makes it all worthwhile. And yes, I know the majority of Christians believe we won't experience those things like I said. I'll get to those points. So these are people coming out of tribulation. And when they come out, they are immediately taken care of. They are washed and dressed in white robes. And he who sits on the throne dwells among them, with them. No more tears or distress. He wipes all the tears away. He immediately cares for his children. And they worship him and serve him day and night in his temple. It's a beautiful picture. And we need to focus on that because it appears believers at this time will have a lot to go through. So we have to know what waits us on the other side. So now you ask, I've heard that it's seven years of tribulation. Why is it seven years? The book of Daniel is a good one for you to study. We do not have time in this episode to address the book, but may I mention that chapters 7 through 11 cover quite a bit of apocalyptic and end-time prophecy. 
And one passage in particular found in chapter 9 mentions an ominous figure called the abomination of desolation, a desolator. The same abomination of desolation Jesus mentions in Matthew 24, verse 15, an antichrist figure who is going to make some kind of a covenant or agreement with Israel for one week. And careful study of these passages in Daniel have most scholars in agreement that one week represents seven years. But halfway through the seven years, this desolator is going to break covenant. And all hell is going to break loose, literally, on earth. And this is referred to as Daniel's 70th week. And so it equates to a seven-year period of time. That's where we get the seven years of tribulation. And so that brings us to the next question. What is the rapture? Isn't chapter 7 a picture of raptured saints, raptured Christians? First, many people ask, where did this word even come from? Because many argue that it does not show up in our Bibles, this word rapture. Well, it's a word that comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of Scripture of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about meeting the Lord in the air, being caught up with him. And the Latin word translating that is rapto raptiri, or rapture in our English transliteration, which means to seize or snatch quickly, violently, in relation of the spirit or the actual removal from one place to another. So people simply say raptured. And since the New Testament is written in Greek, the Greek word is the word harpazo, which also means to seize, catch up, take by force. And so when you come across it in your Bible, you'll come across it as being caught up. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. I'm going to read this in the King James Version. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so then, all, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, rapio, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's one example of that word rapture being used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This word is also used in an act of the Spirit in regards to Philip in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. One moment he's baptizing the eunuch, right? The next moment the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. He was raptured. He was harpazoed and was found in a different place. It also speaks then, of course, of Paul when he was caught up, raptured to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2 and verse 4. And he couldn't even speak of what he saw. It was that incredible. So rapture is biblical. It is found in your Bible. 
just not the word rapture itself. God has performed this before. He has raptured before. And Paul says he's going to do it again in the end before his return. When he comes for the people of God. That was what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. I think all Christians agree on this. But where we differ is in when this particular rapture will take place. Some hold to the pre-tribulation, pre-seven years of trouble, right? Spoken of in Daniel. Some hold to a mid-tribulation after the first three and a half years when the Antichrist or abomination of desolation, that desolator when he breaks the covenant with Israel, leaving the remaining three and a half years unbearable. Or there's those that hold to the post-tribulation rapture where the people of God go through the seven years of great tribulation and everything it entails. Now, most mainstream churches today hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. And because of that, this is the position where we are going to focus most of our attention. Because since most of mainstream denominations teach this, many of you hold to the same doctrine. It's caused many of us to hold to the same belief, the taking away of the saints of God before the seven years of tribulation. And in many cases, teaches that there will be a, quote, secret rapture, end quote, that there will essentially be two returns. In other words, Jesus will come back twice, once in secret to remove his church and once in public to execute vengeance. So let's talk about that a minute. The thought that he would come secretly first, let's talk about that, that the world wouldn't even know that he'd come. They would only notice that all Christians had gone, right? It comes from the verses in Matthew about where someone's in a field, one is taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one is taken, the other left. And it was made current through the Left Behind series. One pilot, you know, he's flying in the airplane. All of a sudden, the pilots are gone and the airplane's going down or someone's driving in their car or the daughter walks in the house and she sees her mother's clothes laying on the floor, right? It's secret, And then all of a sudden, the world's in chaos. The other point is this about the secret, is that this first secret arrival could happen at any moment with no sign of his coming. And that this is the next event on the prophetic calendar, so be ready at any moment. And then finally, once believers are secretly removed, a few years will go by, and Jesus then returns to the earth with his saints, the raptured ones, and with the angels to execute vengeance. So if I can be perfectly honest here, for years, I held one view, the view that I was taught in church, a pre-tribulation rapture. In fact, I didn't even realize there were multiple views at first. And if you know me well, you know I love to study the Bible. The very moment I was born again, I was starving. But as I studied the scriptures, things didn't always add up. So I kept studying and I keep studying. But this is how I discovered the multiple views. So I began to study those also and try to line each view up with scripture, asking myself, how did we determine these views? Have any of you ever stopped for a moment and asked yourself that question? Where did your theology of whichever rapture position you take come from? Did it come from a careful study of scripture? Personally, I think it's good to wrestle through these kinds of questions. I enjoy it. I know some people don't, 
So we just want to be told what to believe. Well, I just don't, I just don't work that way. I don't, I don't study the scripture that way. And what I discovered with the pre-tribulation rapture theology that I believe wholeheartedly is never clearly stated in scripture anywhere. A pre-tribulation rapture, a taking away of God's people before seven years of trouble is never clearly stated anywhere in scripture. There is no clear, firm statement that Jesus is going to come get his church before the tribulation. And that's a problem, don't you think? So it's no wonder when we hold that view, when I held that view, that we struggle reading through Revelation. Because when we do, there are so many mentions of Christians being here through the tribulation, and we're supposed to be gone. And so we try to make up who we think these people are. At least I did. You know, the ones that get saved after everybody's gone, all kinds of things. We're going to talk about that too in a minute. And even that's not supported anywhere. Or we read in chapter 7 about Christians coming out one by one of the great tribulation. I mean, come on. And I don't know about you, but I want to understand. And I can hear the question raised right now because I probably raised it. Wait, 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 Carol. The church isn't mentioned on the earth anymore after chapter 4. So how can this group in chapter 7 be Christians coming out of the great tribulation? And some out of you out there may argue, well, that doesn't mean us Christians. It's others who get saved later. I heard the exact same thing for years, and I'm figuring it out. That's nothing of the sort. I encourage you to revisit it too. It's certainly true that from Revelation 4 to chapter 16, I think, and even in 19, the word church never occurs, and therefore it is assumed that the absence of the word church means the absence of the church. The church can't be there if the word is not used. But how then do you explain the use of the words elect and saints, the very same Greek words used throughout the whole New Testament and then used all the way through Revelation? That word elect means select. It means chosen ones. Jesus uses this word to define believers. And the epistles are filled with this word in reference to believers. That's why Jesus uses this word in his whole end time discourse when he's speaking of his followers. They are the elect, the chosen ones. And the word saints, that's found in concordance number 40. The exact same Greek word that is used beginning in Matthew all the way through to the end of Revelation. The same word saints used for Corinthians, Colossians, Acts, Ephesians, the whole entire New Testament. Born again believers. Those who are sacred, holy, separated from sin, it says, and therefore consecrated to God. It's used to describe men and things devoted to God. It's used to describe the state into which God in grace calls all men. It also says this is why believers are called to sanctify themselves, cleansing ourselves from all defilement, forsaking sins. It also goes on to say in the concordance, saints are the holy temple, the local church. So again, what are we to do with these same words showing up all through Revelation? Well, Carol, again, it's those who get saved in the tribulation. Is it? Show me that in scripture. I see it nowhere. How do we explain how other New Testament scriptures 
when describing this time of distress, this end time events, how the word church does not occur there either, but the words elect and saints are there. And when we see that, and then look at Revelation 14, 12, for example, which is a call to saints to do what? To endure, to keep the commandments of God and remain faithful to Jesus. Why? Because they're getting pressed. They're in tribulation. The saints of God are in tribulation. Jesus himself, like I said, uses that word elect in his discourse in Matthew 24. For the elect not to be deceived, that for the elect's sake, the days will be shortened. And please note, no one clearly knows what exactly that means, by the way. We infer the meaning, but it's not clearly defined. So be careful of that. Christians are also referred to throughout the New Testament as the elect, the chosen of God and saints in, in, in the epistles. Every epistle is addressed to the saints. And there are six epistles that never use the word church, but only use the word elect. Does that mean they aren't meant for us because the word church is missing? And there is one epistle that only uses the word saints and never uses the word church, and that's Jude. So is Jude not for us? See, do, you see, do you see how we're making the scripture fit our theology? Are you going to tell me that 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 John, and Jude are not for Christians because the word church is not used? It's foolish. It doesn't make any sense. And these were the holes I was finding in, the own, in my own theology that I was believing. So throughout the rest of Revelation, you're going to find the words elect and saints, but not church. And you're going to have to figure out who you think Jesus is referring to in that. And so to justify the pre-tribulation position, what has happened over the last only 150 years is that people infer this belief through other passages of scripture, as did I, meaning we deduce or conclude from other passages and reasoning rather than from explicit statements, which is how I was taught to embrace it too. Hey, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a downer over here, but I look around my friends and the world is in unrest. And I am seeking a better understanding. I know many people who are seeking a better understanding and scratching their heads and looking around saying, I think maybe something's a little off here. Because if trouble comes, I want to be ready and able to endure. Because friends out there, we're either preparing for escape or preparing for persecution. I'm preparing for the latter. So back to what I was saying, inferring. That's what we're doing to support our position. And other passages are inferred to justify the position most of us have taken. So we've built this huge doctrine on something that is never clearly stated, only inferred in the scripture. It's not clearly stated anywhere. And don't you think the Lord would want us to know clearly? So for example, I was taught that the story of Noah, Noah escaping the flood with his family, was a type or shadow of the pre-tribulation rapture. And like Noah and his family being saved from destruction, God's people are saved out of it too. It's inferred. And again, through the story of Lot and his family and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they are saved out of the destruction that befalls those cities. Jericho and the story of Rahab and her family being saved from destruction. 
inferred again as a picture of end-time believers being rescued from destruction. It's an example in the Bible that is used to infer that that is what will happen to us, but it is never clearly stated anywhere in Scripture, and we must be careful. And there's others. What about we are not appointed to wrath, or comfort one another with these words, or look up, your look up your redemption draws nigh, and more. And I learned that each one of those, when looked at in their fuller context, means so much more than just applying them to a pre-tribulation rapture. So for me, if it's not clearly stated, I ask myself, how did we become so confident that this will happen? Have you ever asked yourself that? I do believe the days will be shortened for the elect at some point. But when you read Revelation, saints and the elect are here for quite a bit first. And believe me, I've had my family ready for a rapture many times when things were taking place on the earth over the last 10 years. Just ask them. They thought I was crazy. They'd make jokes about it. If I, if I left the house early to go to the grocery and told nobody and someone saw my robe lying on the floor or something, they would think, oh, we're left behind. Mom got raptured. It was a big joke. So I, I lived this. But all kidding aside, the more I kept digging... I kept discovering too many things didn't line up. If there are only inferences and no concrete scriptures to tell us that there is a pre-tribulation rapture, how did it make its way into our churches and core belief about the end time events? Well, I'd like to give you a history of the idea, which may not mean much to some of you out there, but it's good to know nonetheless. Before the 19th century, nobody, nobody, had taught about a pre-tribulation rapture, heard of it, and above all, nobody had ever found it in the Bible. Did you know that? Before the 19th century, nobody had taught on a pre-tribulation rapture. Now that means something. That should raise a question in our minds. We know that knowledge will increase the closer we get to the return of Christ. I get that. That's found in Daniel. But you're going to tell me that for the last 1,800 years, of Christianity, nobody found it in their Bible. Why is that? The first time the idea was mentioned was in 1830, when a young Scottish girl named Margaret MacDonald from Glasgow, Scotland, was healed of an illness 15 years prior, and she started to have visions and dreams about end-time events. So many that she became known as a young prophetess, Well, in 1830, one of her revelations of the end times was about a secret snatching away or secret removal, secret being the key word she used, a secret removal of the people of God before seven years of tribulation. She shared it with her community and pastor, a man named Edward Irving. And he was captivated by her vision, so intrigued, in fact, that he began to study the scriptures to see what scripture could justify this vision. Well, he had a friend, John Darby from England, who came up to visit him in Scotland. He shared the vision with John and he too was intrigued. John Darby gathered other leaders together and they met in Ireland where they started to look into this young girl's prophecy about a pre-seven years of tribulation rapture, this secret snatching away of the people of God. 
It was largely condemned by leaders attending, but some latched onto it, namely Darby. He then took that theology and he moved to America, bringing with him the Brethren Movement. And he befriended a lawyer by the name of C.I. or Cyrus Schofield. And these two guys, Darby and Schofield, would go on to become very influential figures in modern theology. Now, John Darby, just so you know, is the one who spearheaded the dispensationalist movement, which I'll explain in a few minutes. Don't get hung up on the big word. Dispensationalism is just a popular and widespread way of reading and interpreting the Bible that was popularized in the United States through the Bible conference movement. Its growth was spurred on even more through the partnership of Darby and Schofield and the publication of the Schofield Reference Bible, the very first study Bible, which was published in 1909. Now, Schofield's Bible contributed to the spread of dispensationalism because it included study notes written from a distinctively dispensationalist perspective, and it included study notes on the new doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture, a doctrine that originated from the vision of a young girl. The founding of Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924 by Lewis Sperry Schaefer provided an academic institution for the training of pastors and missionaries in the dispensationalist tradition. And once it took into the seminaries, my friends, it ultimately took hold into the publishing houses and spread like wildfire. Now, according to this dispensationalist doctrine, this present church age will be followed by a seven-year period of tribulation. Before the tribulation begins, thus the word pre-tribulation, the church will be caught up to heaven where believers will be with Christ until the second coming, which occurs at the end of tribulation. At that time, they will return with Christ who will then inaugurate his millennial kingdom. Although dispensationalism is best known for its eschatological doctrines, at its heart is the distinction between Israel and the church. Have you ever wondered why so many Christians misunderstand Israel and the church's relationship and why it's never taught on in our churches? It's because of this. What this distinction means for dispensationalists is that there are two peoples of God. Israel is one of these and consists of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church is the other. And it consists of all those and only those, whether Jew or Gentile, who are saved between the day of Pentecost and the rapture, the pre-tribulation rapture. Part of the reason for the pre-tribulation rapture is to remove the church from the earth so that God can begin dealing with national Israel again. Friends, this is the doctrine everybody is believing. Have you ever wondered, though? Why most mainstream pastors and maybe even your own never, ever, ever teach on Romans 11? Romans 9 through 11, actually. Read it. Read Romans 11. And I think you're going to figure it out pretty quickly on your own. So dispensationalism tip basically divided up the scriptures. It divided up how God saves people into seven periods of time or seven dispensations, making it a system of historical progression consisting of a series of stages in God's self-revelation and plan of salvation. So here they are. 
There was the dispensation of innocence, which was the time of creation to the fall of man. There's the dispensation of conscience, which is the fall to the flood. There's the dispensation of human government, the flood to Abraham. There's the dispensation of the promise, Abraham to Moses. The dispensation of law, Moses to Jesus. And then the dispensation of grace. I'm sure you've heard that. Pentecost to pre-tribulation rapture. And then there will be the dispensation of the kingdom. The time for Israel to recognize their Messiah, but also others who come to faith during the tribulation after the church is gone. And so between that movement and then when the popular novel series left behind selling millions of copies, billions of copies probably, and painting a picture of the rapture, friends, prior to 1830, there was no evidence of anyone preaching it, teaching it, or even arguing about it, or even engaging with it. Think about that for just a moment. The early church fathers did not believe in this. Between this dispensational movement of the 1830s, the whole left behind, all of it, there was no doctrine of the sort taught in the body of Christ. Do we really think Jesus would keep something like that hidden? for 1,800 years, neglecting so many other beautiful brothers and sisters from the truth, I find that very hard to believe. But don't take my word for it, please. Please, please, please research this on your own. Please. Don't take anybody's word for it. From here on out, friends, I'm telling you, and I say this in love as your friend, we rely only on the spirit of truth. And I still wrestle. Every day I want him to wrestle with me. And I want only truth. But know that this is the most acceptable end-time rapture scenario accepted in mainstream churches in the West. Even though, you may not realize this, most of the global church rejects this doctrine. They hold to a post-tribulation rapture, as stated in Matthew 24, 29, where Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and he goes on, He will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, his chosen ones, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. Ponder that. You'll find pockets around the world where people might believe in it here and there. But most of the global church believes we are here for the seven years of trouble, and they are preparing for it. While we stock up on supplies for daily physical survival, they are memorizing books of scripture for spiritual survivor survival. This is something to ponder. Again, do your own research. You tell me what you find. Because here's why I'm concerned. We're not prepared for what's coming. We weren't prepared for what just came through. Many were frozen in fright. We got pressed a little bit and it paralyzed us. No wonder it says in Ezekiel about the shepherds, they have not prepared their people to stand in the day of battle. Well, guess what? The shepherds in the other parts of the world are. So as I begin to close, let me give you some verses to look up in addition to what we've already covered. Because scripture is clear. There are things we know for certain to happen. Number one, there will be a tribulation. It states it in Daniel, Matthew, 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, Revelation, 
And we know that after the tribulation and after the cosmic events, the heavens will be shaken, all of that. Number two, 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. It mentions that Jesus is going to deal out retribution, quote, when he comes. And he says he comes in flaming fire. Paul doesn't comfort the believers in Thessalonica with the words of comfort telling them he's going to take them away before that so that they don't have to deal with things anymore. Why wouldn't Paul say that? Instead, it says he will give them rest. Jesus will give them rest when he is revealed in flaming fire to take vengeance on his enemies. That's when he says relief will come. Number three, we know that there will be a falling away from faith. For some, the pressure will be too great. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's after this falling away that the Antichrist, the lawless one, is revealed. And Paul is trying to prepare them for it. To not be shaken in mind or spirit. And he says, let no one deceive you by any means. And in that same, number four, in that same 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says people will be given over to a stupor to believe the lie because they had no interest in the truth when they had time. Number five, we know that trumpets will be a sign of his arrival, that at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised and will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 50 to 52. Paul is explaining the resurrection of our bodies at the end of the age when the Lord returns. And he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Now, if you've studied trumpets in biblical eschatology, you know that there is a series of trumpets scheduled to take place. Paul says we'll be changed at the last trumpet. No one can tell you perfectly what that means, except that it will be at the end of a series of trumpets. And Jesus even confirms this in Matthew 24, verse 31, when he sends his angels out to gather the elect with the great sound of a trumpet. But this is after the cosmic events. This is after the tribulation of those days, Matthew 24, 29. This is when the angels will gather his chosen from the four ends of the earth. And you'll see where this lines up in Revelation down the road. Number six, we know that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we've already read, that we know that he is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive at the coming of the Lord and remain shall be caught up together within the clouds. We will meet those who are already dead in Christ and those who are to meet the Lord in the air so we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Sorry, I got lost in that verse for a minute. So we know that our being raised up will take place at the end, as Paul puts it on the back side of the dead. The resurrection of the dead come first. We keep picturing an event like in the books of Left Behind, where all of a sudden people are gone everywhere, 
But we miss the fact that the Lord will descend from heaven first with a shout so loud the whole earth will hear it. And then graves will be opened like they were opened on the Feast of First Fruits, what we call Easter, where graves were opened and the dead went into Jerusalem. They were the first fruit offering of the resurrection, Jesus being the first fruit. You have to understand the feast day to fully understand what took place that morning. That's a whole nother podcast. But he'll do it again. The dead will raise first. The resurrection of the dead at this point is a pretty final event. So when you're picturing a left behind event, friends, the dead have to go before you. So if you're thinking it's going to be like that, it's not. Now, if you see dead bodies coming out of the ground, then I'd say, okay, this is it. Let's go. But not before. So secret rapture, I'd say not. It will be the most public thing anybody witnesses on the face of the earth. Look, friends, trials purify us. Just as Christians in China have been suffering greatly for 30 plus years now under a horrifying regime, probably feeling like they've already been in the tribulation for 30 years, yet through that persecution, the church in China has exploded. The hidden underground church, not the governmental church there. The hidden underground church, radical for Jesus. People come into faith in Christ in the hundreds of millions. Iran is now the fastest growing church in the world. How? Because of tribulation, because of persecution, the pressing. As Muslims, they've already been trained up for martyrdom. How much more now will they accept martyrdom now that they know the true living God, Christ Jesus? They're not afraid to die for him. Think of Burma, Israel, Pakistan, India. The church is exploding amidst tremendous pressure. And if this is happening now because of persecution, can you imagine global tribulation? Christians refined by the refiner's fire through global persecution. Maybe that's when revival will happen. If persecution is the key that grows the church in persecuted countries now, I imagine it just might be the same key God uses to grow the global church before he returns, where finally all people groups will have heard the gospel, that final sign mentioned in Matthew 24, and where that procession we see in chapter 7 is coming from. Every tribe, every tongue, every people are coming in one by one not just from one particular nation, global Christians coming out of the great global tribulation. And the bride through all that will be purified as in fire. And that purification is what will have made herself ready for her bridegroom, not loving her life unto death. So whatever position you take, I pray that this helped you better understand what tribulation is and what the rapture is, and to look closely at chapter 7. Certainly there are many passages we can cover, and we will as we continue. But in the meantime, pray. Pray for discernment and truth on all of this, please, as I will continue to do. Ask God that if a pre-tribulation rapture is true, to make it clear. Or if this is doctrine that was injected into the body of Christ, to keep us ill-prepared for what's coming, to give us no motivation to take the gospel to the ends of the earth as Jesus states to be his key sign in Matthew 24, 14, then make that clear too. 
Because if this is a false doctrine, then that means the enemy has fooled the church into preparing itself for escape and not preparing itself for enduring persecution. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So I live by a motto, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Whether it comes before seven years of trouble, in the middle of seven years of trouble, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, or at the end of seven years, when scarcely a blade of grass will be left on the earth, all that matters is that I endure and overcome. Because that message to believers becomes the crux of Revelation halfway through in Revelation 14, 12. Friends, how a Christian dies is just as important on how we live. Because by that point, our race is finished. And death somehow reveals the real faith, the real character. Did we live our life for Christ or for ourselves? And so as we move further in Revelation, you're going to experience saints, the elect, and the Jews. And we'll go into more detail on all that. I encourage you to tread slowly, watchfully, and prayerfully. Because what you believe to be true about the end times and the end time church has far-reaching implications for how we live our Christian life. It also has far-reaching implications on what kind of gospel we are preaching and how we talk to others about the return of Christ. I pray we all keep running our race and finish well. God bless you today. Take care. (music) 